I want to read to you out of Titus, so you have your Bible taken and open to chapter 2. There's a short passage I want us to look at. The Holy Spirit says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's a momentous statement. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It echoes what John writes, For God so loved the the world that he gave his one and only unique Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God is gracious, beloved. He is gracious, God gave. This grace has appeared. Verse 12 says it it teaches us, this, this grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's grace does something in us. It changes us. It transforms us. God's grace marvelously, miraculously teaches us. Teaches us to recognize and to say no to those things that bring death and say yes to those things that provide life. How many want a a wholesome, healthy, happy, full, blessed life? Anybody here this morning? Oh, not everybody. (laughs) It's the grace of God. I suggested to you last time that grace, God's grace, is the most powerful, life-changing force available to us. God's grace. Verse 14, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, gave himself for us, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. It's all by his grace. Changes us, transforms us, purifies us. Gives us a heart to do what is good. And when you and I don't have that heart to do what is good, he gives us the ability to do that. Isn't that marvelous? God's grace. Paul writes those things to Titus. And let me read one more verse to you in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 and verse 10. Talking about himself, he describes himself, I think, marvelously. Do you think that God's grace had its effect in Paul's life? Did God's grace change Paul? Oh, yeah, from, a, from an angry, uh, zealous persecutor of the church to one of the greatest, greatest advocates for the gospel. And listen to what he says in this passage. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, he's not just saying, well, you know, you just have to accept me like I am. You know how we do. Just, I'm just me. Like it or leave it. Love me, love my dog. You know how people get. (laughs) He's not saying that. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Look at where God's taken him. Look at what God's done in his life. How he's changed him. But Paul says, it's God's grace that has changed me. Oh, beloved, if if we could just understand God's grace... If we could just grasp it, how our lives would benefit by it. And then he concludes that by saying, and his grace to me was not without effect. The Bible talks about God's effectual grace. It has an effect, a transforming, transforming effect. God's grace the most powerful, life-changing force available to man. Now, having said that, 
the question comes up, well, if God's grace can change me, if God's grace can change anybody, why then do I see so little change? Why do I see so little change? How is it that we can look at our own lives? How is it that we can look at the church and see so little of this transforming power around? We hear about it, but how come we don't see it? Well, we would do well, I think, to ask ourselves that question. I think we would do well to ask ourselves that question not once, not twice, but over and over and over again. I think we need to be looking and evaluating, uh, not critically, not in a negative sense, but looking and evaluating, is God's grace active in my life? Is God's grace active in my church? God's grace. Heaven knows there's lots of other dynamics active in the church and active in our lives, isn't that true? But how about God's grace? This is not just an intellectual issue. This is not just a theoretical thing. This is the the reality, the power of God at work in our life, and it it is by His grace. Well, the answer, I believe, that we don't see and we don't experience His life-changing power in our life or in the life of our church or the life of the church as much as we ought to and long to see it, I think the reason is because there are very simply some obstacles. There's some obstacles. There's some roadblocks, if you will, to understanding and as well to benefiting by God's grace in our life. There's some things in the way. There's some things in the way. This week and next week, we're going to be talking about some of those obstacles, and hopefully as we recognize them, we can know how better to deal with them, and, uh, and then bent by that way we can now begin to under, not only understand but also benefit by God's grace in our life. The greatest obstacle, I think, one in fact that includes all the others, this is kind of an overarching obstacle, is the fact that our minds and hearts... Our minds and hearts from earliest childhood. Now remember, we are born with what, what kind of a nature? A sin nature. So already from the get-go, from the, from the very beginning, we are, we are functioning from a deficit. We're in a hole to start with. We're sinners. That's our human nature. We're born enemies of God. We are, we are born in sin. We're born under judgment and wrath. Because of sin. It may be hard to grasp when you hold a precious little baby in your arms. But that's the reality of it. And how do you know that? Because it's not very long before that baby begins to evidence it's in nature. Isn't that true? (laughs) What's the very first word a child learns? No. No. You say, where did you learn that? (laughs) (laughs) So from earliest childhood, because of our sin nature... Our minds and hearts develop. The foundational things are still there, but we develop certain habitual reactions. Certain habitual reactions, habits. We develop them. We fine-tune them. We're very good at it. And these are reactions against, quite frankly, God. These are reactions towards righteousness, good behavior. Reactions towards our own inadequacies, our failures. We learn how to cover up. We learn how to make excuses. We learn how to be defensive. It doesn't take very much, does it? We learn how to react towards others, and not always positively, not always graciously, not always kindly, not always lovingly. So we develop. We, we develop these things. We start from a deficit, and from our earliest childhood, we work very hard at developing these kinds of reactions. And these reactions dominate our attitudes. They dominate our feelings throughout all of the demands, throughout all of the difficulties of our life. They dominate 
These habits of thinking and these habits of reacting are profoundly legalistic. Profoundly legalistic. That is, despite all that our minds and even our hearts, despite all that our minds and even our hearts tell us about the grace of God, these blind, unreasoning habits lead us to react as if somehow we still had to earn something from God. It just comes automatic. It's so deeply ingrained in us. A performance mentality. I must perform. I must perform. It's as if God is at some level condemning us for our sins and withholding his love, withholding his acceptance, withholding his blessings until we do better. It's just kind of just under the surface. We have this, this vague sense of unless I do better, then I'm, I'm not, I can't really ask and expect God to bless my life. I've got to do better. I've got to be a better this. I've got to be a better that. Failure to do what I want to do. Failure to do what I need to do. Failure to do what I ought to do. What does that lead to? When you fail, when you fail to do what you want to do, need to do, and ought to do, what does that lead to in your life? Joy? (laughs) Are you overjoyed? You're going, oh, I failed, hallelujah. (laughs) What does that lead to? At least a frustration, doesn't it? At least a frustration. I mean, you, you hear that echoed in Paul's words in, in, in Romans chapter 7. Why? Why can't I do what I want to do? Why can't I get this thing right? So failure, failure simply to do what I want to do, need to do, ought to do, leads to frustration, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. For some people, it leads to uh, absolutely a sense of self self. Hatred. Some of you have said this to yourself. I hate myself. I hate, I've, I've talked to people. Christians. I just hate myself. And if you've never said it, maybe you've thought it. I'm disgusted with myself. But I didn't even stop there. It goes on to depression and goes on from there to despair. That's why some people will absolutely kill themselves. Because in their own minds, in their own eyes, they're so hopeless, so hopeless, so hopeless, such terrible, terrible, terrific failures. It all starts with us. We all have an image. We all have an image of who and what we want to be or need to be or ought to be, and we fail miserably. There isn't a single one of us that matches up with the image. Not only that, not only do we have an image of what we want to be, need to be, and ought to be, but other people have an image of what we need to be and ought to be, right? So not only do you live under the curse of what you think, you live under the curse of what others think or what you think they think. (laughs) You ever thought this? Oh, what are people going to think? And put you in a prison, didn't it? It's not bad enough that we do it to ourselves. It's, it, it, just, it just keeps multiplying. What does all that lead to? It doesn't lead to joy. It doesn't lead to joy. And then it's not, not long after that, begin, begin these subtle, quiet accusations. Accusations by ourselves towards ourselves. Notwithstanding the fact that we have an accuser, the Bible says, Romans cha- or, uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we have an accuser of the brethren who stands and accuses us day and night, the devil himself. Not bad enough that I accuse myself, but I have somebody else accusing me. Not bad enough that I'm a critical of myself or that I think others are critical of me, but I've got a spiritual entity who's adamantly Adamly committed to accusing me, accusing me to me, accusing me to others, accusing me to God himself. So we begin to accuse ourselves. But why? Why do we accuse ourselves? 
Oh, this is a subtle thing. Because down deep inside, I believe that my worth as a person comes from my performance. I mistakenly believe that my worth as a person comes from how well I do, how well I perform. Is anybody relating to this at all? A few of you? Good. I can only feel good about myself if I've earned the right to by some kind of good performance. We ask, you know, we say, how'd I do? How'd I do? Right? Or some such statement like that. I can only feel good about others if they've earned that right by their good performance. We say to our kids, oh, you're so good, so wonderful. Generally, when they've done something good, we've only reinforced in them now what? That positive behavior by rewarding the positive behavior, and now they begin to wonder, well, am I only good when I'm good? Am I only acceptable when I'm performing? When I'm on stage? And then what we do is we take this same motivation because we know it so intimately in our own lives and because we, we do it to others. Others are acceptable uh, when they're performing, when they're doing good. Then we take it and guess where we project it onto? God. We project that same motivation onto God. You see, he can only feel good about me if I'm performing up to a certain level. Otherwise, he's not happy with me. He's only happy with me if I'm performing up to a certain level. Even though I know in my mind that he is gracious, even though I know what the Bible says, that God is gracious, yet at my heart habit level, at my what? Heart habit. It's so important you understand this. These are habits we develop. At my heart habit level, I live as though he is not gracious. I live that way. My day-to-day walk as a Christian, my day-to-day life, is not functioning always with a mindset of his grace. Bottom line is that all of us, all of us are legalists. Now, you may protest. You say, not me. I am not a legalist. You especially. <laughs> if you've got to defend yourself and say that, that just tells me you are, you've just said it. You can deny it all day long. You are a legalist. We're all legalists. I'm a legalist. You're a legalist. We're all performers <laughs> to gain somebody's acceptance. Would you agree with me? And these old habits, beloved, these old habits reside deep in us and they continually assert themselves. They continually rise to the surface in our lives and as they do, they destroy. They don't bring life, they bring death. They bring destruction. They bring pain. They bring grief. What happens in you? What happens inside of you when things don't go well? Do you automatically rejoice, Miley? Do you just, when Matui's not being the kind of husband as he ought to be, sensitive to you, loving you, do you just go, thank you, God, for this man. Lord, I, he's just a great man, even though he's not being what he ought to be. No, what, what happens when things don't go well? What happens inside of you? What happens when you fail? I mean, you, you, you're attempting something, you're doing something, you're, you're trying to be something you think you ought to be, you want to be, you need to be, you're really pressing on this thing, and it all falls apart and you fail. How, what happens inside of you? Hmm? Yeah, you can lose hope. You say, but that's only human. That's the point. <laughs> this is the point. 
This is part of our dilemma as humans. What happens when one of your insecurities or your inadequacies comes to the surface and somebody begins to poke at it? Oh, that's a good one, isn't it? Just to love that. Some people describe that as pushing your buttons. Or, I know where your goat lives. You know that old saying? I know where your goat's tied up. What happens in you when someone, someone who knows, they know your weakness, they know your insecurity, they know your sense of inadequacy, and they just begin to push it? Joy? <laughs> what happens? What happens inside of you? Anybody ever get angry? Anybody ever rebel, dig their heels in? Well, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm out of here or something. <laughs> you ever get jealous? You ever, you ever wonder why? You ever wonder why? Why am I getting jealous? No, there's a good jealousy and a bad jealousy. We're talking about the bad jealousy, right? Do <laughs> you ever wonder why you gossip? Talk about others? Juicy things. <laughs> Do you ever wonder why you get critical? How about moody? And it's not just your hormones. <laughs> why am I so moody? Golly. Anybody ever justify themselves? You know, you, I mean, you're, you're, you're caught. You're, 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 you're in a tough place, and all of a sudden you go, yeah, but you, you, you don't understand. Let me explain. Right? What's on the line there? You. You're on the line. See, at the bottom of all of this, is our pride. And our pride evidences itself, hear me now, through legalism. Our pride evidences itself through legalistic heart habits and attitudes. Is there anybody here who is not prideful? <laughs> That's right, we all are. It's a never, never ending battle until we go to heaven. It's always with us. These attitudes, these habits, this legalism. You see, somewhere, somewhere, these things, as these things continue to, to surface in our life, and the more they surface, the more they're in evidence in our life, these kinds of, 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 of outworkings of these habits, all that says is somewhere along the line, we have lost sight again of the grace of God. Let me say that again. Somewhere along the line, we have lost sight again of the grace of God. God, in effect, has become someone who will not accept me if I'm not perfect. It's not fallen people like me that he loves, we say in effect. Rather, it's perfected people, worthy beings, far above what I am. You know, I, I believe that we all have our own type of legalistic God. We all have our own caricature of God or some combination. I'm going to give you some examples here in a second. A God who reacts in a certain way when we fail to earn his approval. We, in effect, reduce God to our images. We talked last time about the, the God who is kind of like a traffic cop. As long as you're doing what's right, he leaves you alone. But the minute you step out of line, he zooms out, chases you down, catches you, and punishes you. <coughs> Who of us haven't thought, oh man, oh man, i got to do everything that's right because as soon as I step out of line, oh, I know God's just going to whip me. Or maybe your God is the prime nagger of the universe could be. 
Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why aren't you a better Christian? Why did you go there? Incessant. Why, why, why? Leave me alone already. <laughs> Get off my back. Or maybe, maybe your God is like an old stony-faced curmudgeon. Have you ever gotten the look? <laughs> you know, husbands get it from their wives sometimes. <laughs> right away, you know you're in trouble. Maybe kids get it from moms every now and again, right? It's great. You watch the kids. Kids after the service, they're run- the little kids, they're running all through this place, right? Especially after the next service, and they're jumping off the platform here. Kids have been jumping off this platform for years, ever since we've had a platform. Every parent, that kids grow up in this church, have seen their kids jump off this platform. And sometimes the moms go, Kids are having a ball. They're just running. They're playing. They're laughing. Oh, they're chasing each other. And all of a sudden, they look over mom. Mom's going. No more fun. Maybe your God is like that. Maybe you don't want to look up there unless he's looking down at you with the, the stare. Maybe your God is kind of like a domineering parent who just absolutely smothers you, smothers you, governs, dictates, controls every thought, every feeling, every act, totally controlling. You have no room, no, no, no room to move. Frustrated, frustrated, frustrated. I think one of the most horrible distortions of God's true nature, how we distort his true nature, is that which makes God into the kind of a person who uses his love, who uses his grace as a weapon to force behavior. This is one of the things, this is one of the, these attitudes, these perceptions of God that really do, in effect, block his effective grace in our life. Somehow we pick up the idea that he uses his love, his, his grace, to coerce us into obedience. So grace becomes not so much a fact of his very nature, the way he is, and as such, then wins my trust, wins my love, wins my hope, and enables me to obey no, it becomes something that he does for me and then throws it in my face in order to obligate me to do all sorts of things, things that I neither have the inclination to do nor the resources to do. It's as if God were saying to me, look what I did for you. Look what I did for you. Now, why aren't you a better Christian? Why aren't you a better Christian? Have you no gratitude? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Get with it. The terrible thing about this, about this kind of God, is the fact that he seems to be right. He has done something great for us. And we, we ought to respond, shouldn't we? We ought to respond to his kindness with greater love and greater commitment. Would you agree with me? Our ingratitude and the way we express that is indeed despicable. We don't have any excuse. We don't have a leg to stand on. You see, he seems right. Our God, if our God is the kind of God who says to, in effect, look what I've done for you, why aren't you a better Christian? And we go, yeah, you're right. Don't we? Why aren't I a better Christian? You see, somehow grace, in that little transaction, somehow grace has disappeared from his dealings with us. It's just flat disappeared. And because grace now is missing, our very hope 
for responding to him properly has disappeared also. No grace there. You see, grace ceases being grace when it compels a response. Grace ceases to be grace when it compels a response, when you have to respond. Imagine someone saving your life by some great personal act of self-sacrifice and heroism. And then later they use this act of heroism, self-sacrifice against you. I mean, when they save your life, you'd be grateful, wouldn't you? Be so grateful to that person that you would really kind of be open to doing anything for them, return the favor, so to speak. you say, oh, if I could ever do anything to help you, please, please don't hesitate to call on me. And, well, they decide to call on you. <laughs> A couple of days later, they come along, and they, and they ask to borrow some money. And you say, sure, you saved my life. Then another week goes by, and they say, you know, I, I hate to ask you this, but I've been needing a, a car for some time now, and I've found one that I, just the one that I want. I, and I, I don't suppose you could help me. I, I, just, I just need help with the down payment. I need about $1,000. You gulp a little bit, and you say, well, that's, I don't know if I can get a hand, my hands on that much money right now, but I'll see what I can do to help. And a couple days later, comes along and says, you know, my wife needs to get away for a week or so, and could you babysit for us, please? <laughs> you hesitate a moment, then you, then you respond, you reply, and you say, well, it'll be a little difficult. You see, we were, we were planning to go away ourselves. Well, is there any chance you could change your plans? <laughs> see, it's, it's embarrassing to have to say this, but I did save your life. Yes, you did. Well, since you put it that way, I'll see what I can do. And so it goes on week after week after week. One week, it's maybe some additional financial help. Another week, maybe it's help with his repairing his house. Maybe another week, it's running errands for his wife. And with each new demand, your reluctance grows. Can you understand that? And as your reluctance grows, he increases the pressure. And more and more, he reminds you of what he did for you until finally you can stand it no more. And then you say to him, what if you did save my life? What good is it living under this kind of burden, this kind of pressure? Why can't you just leave me alone? It probably would have been better if you just let me die that day. And then you slam the door in his face. It's just too much. It's too much. And the great fund of goodwill that you once had now has been used as a weapon against you. See, some of us have a God. Some of us have a God that is not greatly different from this. A God who once died for us, but now never ceases to use this act of kindness as a weapon to force our obedience. Does this ring a bell with anybody? Yeah? There's another problem, another obstacle you may be familiar with. And this is closely related to what I just described. It's the attitude or the approach to Christianity that puts grace at the beginning when you get saved and at the end when you go to heaven. But there's nothing in between. It's just grinding legalism in between. It's self-effort in between. In the beginning, no sinner is too low for God to reach. Isn't that true? No forgetting the day when God's grace touched you. Great joy, you were made new. And there's also grace for the, for the end, for the ultimate future 
when the books are opened, your name will be there. You're confident that you don't need to fear death and hell anymore. You're confident that grace has delivered you from final judgment. You know that in that hour there will be no condemnation for you. You know that Jesus has paid the full price. But what about all the time in between? It's one thing when you're saved, saved by grace, I'm saved. Oh, God rescued me, saved me, lifted me up. And I know that at the end, when I go to be with him, it'll be by grace. But I got this huge span of time in between. Do I live by grace? Or do I live by my own legalistic heart, habits, and attitudes? Is God the insatiable taskmaster driving me on to keep doing good works that neither I have neither the desire nor the power or the ability to do? Is God going, good works, good works. Is grace just a conversion mechanism? Is it just a fire insurance policy at the end? What is it? Where is it for my life? Is it just beginning and end grace? Is it grace for the sinner but law for the saint? If that's true, if you've lost sight of grace in your life, in your everyday life, the grace of God, then it's lost its transforming power for you. Grace. Are you knowing his grace? Are you understanding his grace and benefiting by his grace every day in your life? That's part of our question. You recall what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Let me read this verse to you. After beginning with the Spirit, are you now turning your attention to your Uh, trying to attain your goal by human efforts? If you've started off with the Spirit, now have you just resorted to just human expedience behavior to see your life transformed? Paul says in a couple of other places in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, he says, being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. The idea is his grace continues continually available to us to change us, to transform us. You don't change yourself. He says in another place in chapter 4, verse 16 of Second Corinthians that we are being changed inwardly, uh, being renewed day by day. Is that your experience? There's another problem. Another problem, and this is a serious problem, and this really does lie at the root of many others, and this is the problem of perfectionism. Jesus said, you, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And as soon as you read that verse, you go, oh, okay, perfect. I've got to be perfect. I've got to be perfect about everything. Well, how's that perfection come along? It's a process of God perfecting us. If you recall from what we're told in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, this is great, this is great. God is at work in you so that you can will and do his good pleasure. He's at work. And because he's at work, Paul says, this is why I pursue excellence. This is why I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Now, by perfectionism, I don't mean that drive toward excellence, which almost all of us have. It's not a bad thing. It's not a harmful thing to want to get an A on the math final. It's not a bad thing, as if you're a musician, to want to master the the piece, master the notes, play them accurately, and have all the different dynamics that go into being an excellent musician. That's not a bad thing. Nor is there any harm in a person wanting to be a better husband or a better wife or a better parent. This is not perfectionism. We need very much, very much to strive toward that perfect love for God and for one another that we all lack. We need to strive towards that. 
But perfectionism is not this pressing forward to a higher goal. Perfectionism is not that which is pursued so that we might grow. Perfectionism is that attitude that makes perfection the prerequisite for acceptance. Unless I've got it together, unless I've got it together, I'm not going to be acceptable. You may not say it in those words, but there is a sense that we carry with us that is down deep inside of us that we have developed over the years since the very beginning. And at every turn, every corner, that is reinforced in us. It's the attitude that says, I cannot accept myself if in any way I fall short of perfection. There are lots of perfectionists. And they drive themselves and other people crazy. And with this attitude of perfectionism is the absolute crippling conviction that other people will not accept me when I fall short or when I fail. Behind all of that is the dreadful thought and belief that God will not accept me if I fall short or if I fail. God, what a horrible treadmill to be on, huh? Horrible. The person who is a perfectionist is in this sense, by definition, a legalist. A legalist. He has to earn his own self-acceptance. He has to earn the acceptance of others. And he has to earn the acceptance of God. Now you may say, and he may be able to quote verses to you, by grace we've been saved not of our own efforts and so forth and so forth, but by how he lives his life, the very habits of his life, he's got to somehow earn God's acceptance. He lives under that kind of cloud. Now the question is, given these obstacles, given these barriers, given these roadblocks to God's grace, to our really understanding it and, and for it to, to benefit our life, the question is, what am I to do? What can I do about this? Is there anything that I can do about these habits to which I am so prone? Well, sure. You can say, all right, I'm not going to be a legalist anymore. <laughs> right. You can say, I'll change. You'll see. Watch me change. <laughs> oh, that's not the way to go. That's not the way to go. Let me, let me suggest there are two very simple things that we can do so that we can really, truly understand God's grace and that our lives can benefit by it. Here's two things. First of all, we talked about this last time, improve your concept of God. Improve your concept of God. What is your God really like? Now, out of one side of your mouth, you may say he's gracious, but how you live your life may say a whole other thing. What is your God like? Improve your concept. If you see these kinds of reactions going on in your life, and if you are wrestling and struggling, if you're looking and you say, why aren't I better? Why aren't I changed? What's wrong with me? Well, you're a legalist. It may have to do with, one, your concept of God. So well, how do I improve my concept of God? Read his book. Amen. Read about him. Read about him. Read about his faithfulness. Read about his love. Read about his righteousness. Read about his holiness. Read about his grace. Read this book with lenses of grace on. Paul says we, 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 we see dimly. Remember Moses. Moses said, God, God, I want to see you. Don't we want to see him? I want to see your glory. 
God said, well, no man can see me live. I'm going to put you up here on the rock, and I'll put my hand in front of you, and I'll pass by. You see my backside. You see, when you open this book, you know what you can say? You open this book, you say, God, show me your glory. Before you open this book to read, God, show me your glory. I had a, a young woman who was really struggling with a lot of this stuff. Last week, called me and talked to me on the phone, and I said, let me, let me suggest a couple of things for you to do. And one of them was to pray that prayer before she read the Bible. And she says, well, she says, what am I to read? I said, I don't care what you read. Just read until God shows you his glory. <laughs> What's that like? I said, you'll know it. You'll know it. I can't draw and label all the parts for it, but you'll know it. And so I had a marvelous conversation with her last night after the service. She'd been, it's been several days now for her, and she says, I can't believe this. This is, this, is, this is incredible. She says, every time I'm just crying, I'm just crying all day that my life is just so full of joy. I just, this is about yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Improve your concept of God. You've got to read his book. God, show me your glory. I want to know you better. I want to know you better. Secondly, this is just as important, you must continually reaffirm, you must continually, please note this, continually reaffirm your trust in his grace. You take your stand over and over and over, again and again and again on grace. Listen to what Paul says. I love this. Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven. Ooh. Happy are they whose transgressions are forgiven. When someone's forgiven, you're really forgiven. Aren't you happy? You go, whoo, all right. <laughs> happy are those, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, and blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Would that make you happy? See, what is that? That's a statement of God's what? His grace. And so, when you're feeling negative, when you're feeling criticized, when you're feeling judged by others, what should you do? What should you do? When you're retreating, you're going, eh. What you do? Anybody? Reaffirm his grace. Reaffirm your trust in his grace. Reaffirm your trust in his grace. When you fail, what should you do? Get bummed? Down on yourself? What should you do? Reaffirm your trust in his grace. Are you going to fail? Every day. It's part of our condition. Now, I know some of you are going, yeah, but just hold on. When you feel a sense of inadequacy, when you're feeling insecure, when you're feeling afraid, worried, what should you do? Reaffirm your trust in his grace. God, you're gracious. You're gracious. You're gracious. When you feel frustrated, when you feel out of it, what should you do? Reaffirm your trust in his grace. When you feel like dirt in your own eyes, beloved, believe that God loves you. Believe that he loves you. Believe that he loves you. Believe that he is gracious and continually reaffirm your trust in his grace at all times. Again and again, we need to remember, beloved, you need to remember, God does not share our low opinion of ourselves. God does not share our low opinion of ourselves. How does God see you? How does God see you? As perfect. 
You say, no, he can't see me, he's perfect. So he sees you. He sees you clothed in, not your own righteousness, he sees you clothed in Christ's righteousness. It's been given to you. He got the A for you. You're an A student in his mind. Can you imagine that? That is so hard to get a hold of, isn't it? That's how he sees you. You've got to reaffirm that. No, God, you, you don't see me like I'm seeing myself. You don't consider me like I'm considering myself. You don't consider me like other people are considering me. God, you see me perfect. Oh, man, that's so good. If God is for me, who can be against me? Who can be against me? No, he does not share our low opinion of ourselves. He does not add his voice to the other people's condemnation. When other people are criticizing, when other people are misunderstanding, when other people are piling on, God does not pile on. Isn't that marvelous? Beloved, we are not dirt to him. You may be dirt in your own eyes, but you're not dirt to him. God loved you. He saved you when you were at your worst. And certainly you've got to be at least a modicum better. <laughs> no, we're not dirt to him. We are his beautiful children. Oh, my. And he is at work in us, isn't he? He's at work in us. We're his beautiful children. We are loved. We are cherished. We are accepted. We are his. And he is gracious. He is gracious. He is gracious. Next time, we're going to look at some more problems and more obstacles to his grace, things that trip us up, more of our, more of our habits, more of our attitudes. We're going to look at legalistic attitudes in the home and legalistic attitudes in the church things we need to be aware of. Would you agree? Let's pray. Lord, how we do thank you for your grace to us. Thank you, Lord, that we can say with your servant Paul, by your grace I am what I am, and your grace to me is not without effect. Lord, you are working in us, and for that we are exceedingly grateful. And thank you for that confidence. You've not left us to our own devices, Lord, for left to our own devices we surely surely would be under a huge pile. But Lord, you lift us up. You grant us strength. You're working in us. Lord, help us to see you rightly. Help us as we read your word, not to read it through lenses of legalism and, and performance to get acceptance, but Lord, help us to read them through lenses of grace. That in Christ we're already accepted. We're already accepted. And Lord, as we understand that, we get a better grasp on that, how your grace then changes us. Thank you, Father. We love you this morning, Lord, because you first loved us. Your love inspires us, Lord. Thank you. Amen? Amen. Amen.